Well, folks, it's Jerry Adams here, a race, and I want to start off this evening by paying a little tribute of my own to the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And I had the honour and the pleasure of meeting Desmond Tutu over the years. He was a friend of Ireland, a supporter of the Irish peace process. He was remarkable, compassionate, and an inspirational human being. He never compromised on his belief in the essential goodness of people or on the imperative of dialogue as the means of resolving difference. In Irish, there's a saying, Esterska Ahela Amarian Nadini, which translates as we all live in each other's shadow. In other words, we're all interconnected, interdependent on each other. And few people understand the essence of this connectivity between people better than Archbishop Tutu. It was a fundamental part of his religious faith and of his humanity. He worked for a better Africa, a better South Africa, and for a better world. As an internationalist, he understood and welcomed the solidarity of others for the people of South Africa in their struggle against apartheid. In 1984, as he travelled to Oslo to receive his Nobel Peace Prize, Archbishop Tutu stopped in London, where he met Karen Giron and Mary Manning, two of the Dunn's store strikers refusal, who had refused to handle South African produce. He applauded their solidarity. The efforts of the Dunn store workers and others eventually forced the Irish government to ban South African goods. Seven years later, in April 1991, Desmond Tutu was back in Ireland this time to meet with Anglican church leaders and to take part in the annual Lewisburg Famine Walk in Mayo. And during his visit, Desmond commented on efforts at that time to establish a talks process in the North. Drawing from his South African experience, he said and advised, let your negotiations be as inclusive as possible. Don't let anyone feel they've been excluded. Let them be represented by those they regard as their authentic spokespersons. Otherwise, talks, as we have discovered at home, become an exercise in futility. The British and Irish governments and most of the church leaders ignored this advice and the talks process collapsed at that time. It was another six years before inclusive all party negotiations commenced in September 1997. As an internationalist, the Archbishop was equally vocal in his opposition to the apartheid policies of the Israeli state and its ill-treatment of the Palestinian people. This aspect of his public work was also largely opposed by many in the political establishments and in the media. They failed to support him on those issues while he was campaigning on them. Yet, after his death, they praise him for his courage and vision. 
the boycott, divestment and sanctions BDS movement for Palestinian rights was established in 2005. Archbishop Tutu was among the first to endorse its strategy and efforts. In March 2014, he reflected on the role that boycotts and disvestment played in encouraging world governments to end their support for the white apartheid regime. The same issues of inequality and injustice today motivate the divestment movement trying to end Israel's decades-long occupation of Palestinian territory and the unfair and prejudicial treatment of the Palestinian people by the Israeli government ruling over them. Desmond Tutu's internationalism, compassion and humanity also saw him speak out against other forms of injustice and inequality and the threat posed by climate change. Only two months ago, he took part in a United Nations campaign against homophobia and transphobia. He was also critical of the corruption that uh, visited the African National Congress administration when it came into power. His death has silenced a voice, a voice for reason, for a kinder, more caring, just and sympathetic society, for a better world. His courage through decades of struggle and his determined support for human rights and especially for the people of Palestine is a challenge to the international community. So I want to extend my condolences to the people of South Africa, the President Cyril Ramaphosa and to Archbishop Tutu's family. And then on a slightly lighter but nonetheless reflective note, I was just thinking about our old pal, Tom Hartley. And Tom Hartley is a fine singer. He and I have been known to duet together back in the day in Sea Wing in Belfast Prison on the Crumlin Road. His dulcet tones echoed around the landings like a bird in flight while my rich baritone kept close harmony. Our sonorous grace notes soared and dipped in perfect time. Even now, decades later, men locked in their lonely cells and in the loneliness of that time, recalling nowadays how they were transfixed by the magical quality of our voices, those men will shed a tear at this musical memory. I even remember prison officers being moved by these moments. Tom always said he couldn't abide mediocrity. And that certainly is the case as far as his singing was concerned. The crag and white hair bound its freely along the prison landing, to be followed by the poignant tale of Steve Gallion Brez. And for a few liberating minutes, we were all free from the melancholy of the crumb and transported by the strength and melodiousness of song into another place.
That's where the blues comes from. From the slave plantations and prisons. From the chain gangs. Or in our case, the latrines and sea wing. Tom's musical roots go deep. A pioneer, though not of the abstinious kind, of music sessions and a traveller to flies when the best sessions were on the Monday or Tuesday after the visitors had gone home. Thomas steeped in coal. That was the 60s. Way back in 1969 and behind the barricades, I recall he and I and some friends sharing the new recording of Urera Segedi. We were in Tom McGoldrick's mother's parlour and we were all enthralled by this new confident presentation of traditional music. Here was our music outed from the back rooms and kitchens and halting sites or the corners of fairgrounds or entrances to GA pitches. Two recent RTE programmes brought all this back to me. Cusk, Seven Drunken Nights, the story of how the Dubliners got to be on top of the pops, and The Flourishing, which is a wonderful televisual journey back into those days of our vogue revival. Seven Drunken Nights was, is, an English-language version of Pegging August Potter, recorded by traditional singer Shosov O'Hanig years earlier and given by him to Ronnie Drew and Donahue's pub one night. When the Dubliners released Seven Drunken Nights as a single, it bottled its way into the English charts in 1967, along with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix and the Kinks. Back in Dublin, well, back in Dublin, RTE banned the Dubliners from the airwaves. Their song is about an unfaithful wife, and that wouldn't do. It was too sexually explicit for the National Maria broadcaster. When news of this broke, the song went immediately to number one in the Irish charts. The people approved. Shasov O'Hinig wistfully remarked that his pegging August Potter was never banned. It continued to be heard on the airwaves, apparently without offending anyone. The flourishing reflects on the emergence of our music from the underground into the foreground and the mainstream in the 60s and 70s. It is a terrific documentary. It reminded me that traditional music was sustained by families steeped in the tradition, including the traveller community, who deserve great credit for keeping our song and music alive. Kjoldus Kjoldari Haran also deserve great credit, and the people of the Yale Talk communities. So too our exiled children in America. Following the shameful disappointment of the post-revolutionary period and the awfulness and savagery of the Civil War and the enforcement of partition, the mass exodus of Irish people included musicians from all parts of our island, many with their own styles and local sets. Some of them who were prominent went on to record these tunes. Others recorded nationalist or republican songs. 
They included the Clancy brothers and Tommy Makem. Slowly, these recordings travelled back home. The 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising saw them, them increase in popularity and the emergence of ballad sessions and ballad groups. The traditional music revival took a huge leap forward with Sean O'Reilly's musical soundtrack for Misha Ura, George Morrison's film about the 1916 Rising. O'Reilly was a musical visionary freed from the neo-colonial cultural amnesia of his time. He was proud of our culture and had the vision and the talent to reboot it and bring it to audiences who embraced it also with pride. They included young musicians who stayed true to the tradition while fusing it with their own generation's genius. Pipers, box players, fiddlers, fluters, harpers, tin whistlers. Even the humble Boron came into its own. And singers in Irish and English and Sean knows dancers. Our pal Tom was useless at dancing. He still is. Ted is our Michael Flatley, August Mayfian Foster. But not everybody appreciated our singing. Once in Gravner Road RUC Barracks, the RUC took grave exception to our rendition of the Oil Triangle. I suppose hearing it 27 times without pause can be trying. They threw us out. We wanted you to sing, said the duty sergeant, but not like that. Get out of here and give our heads peace. Tom stood in front of him, legs apart, shoulders back, chest out. He smiled angelically, put his hand up to his ear. He closed his eyes, cocked his head back and turned his face upwards. He beckoned me to join him. As I did, he put his other hand on my shoulder. We let our voices ring out. Ah, hungry feeling. Came o'er me stealing. And the mice lay squealing in me prison cell. Get out, the RUC man screamed at us. So we did. Our pal Tom used to make borons. He played them too. I have one of his original drums. He used goatskins. They stunk to the heavens when he was drying them out. Incidentally, he got some of the tricks of boron making from an old man in Sandy Row, who also made lambeg drums. Music unites us all. So there you have it. Until the next time, let the music keep your spirits high. And we'll go out with the Dubliners and seven drunken nights. Slan. I saw a horse outside the door Where my old horse should be But I called my wife and I said to her Will you kindly tell to me Who owns that horse outside the door Where my old horse should be I a drunky, a drunky, a silly old horse Still you cannot see That's a lonely sound that my mother sent to me Well, that's many a day of travel A hundred miles or more But I settle on a sound 
Inside the bed, and this she said to me, 